and hello good people of the internet. So it is I, Tommy Kelly, this is Adventures Movie. This episode is the monthly questions and answers or ask me anything vlog, podcast thingy that I do every month here on the channel. When I put up on Patreon to, to send me some questions and if I don't get enough questions on Patreon, I open it up to the wonderful Adventures in the Woo-Woo community over on Discord. And then they have never let me down. They always have some good questions for me. Um, these questions I, I answer to the best of my ability, given my current understanding about things. And there is a likelihood that I may change my mind about something in the future. You know, given that I hope to progress and evolve and find out more things and expand and all of that. But uh, they're how I see it today, and that's the best I can do. I just want to <laughs> make sure people don't think I in no way think these are uh, the correct answers or the best answers or the only answers for, for that means, but it's just how I answer the question today. So let's get to the questions. So Grayson asks whether or not I can speak Irish. And sadly, like most Irish people, I actually can't. I could have a kind of a funny, broken, attempt at an Irish language and we often do that here in Ireland just to make each other laugh where we uh, throw out phrases well-known phrases from childhood that we learned at school such as which we probably all said a million times when we were primary school it just means can I go to the toilet but it brings a chuckle to us <laughs> but it's sad um, of course there are places in Ireland that where everyone can speak Irish called the Gaeltacht there's a number of them around the country where I suppose their first choice in language is Irish, but they also speak English too. But when you're there and they're speaking to themselves, they will speak in Irish. Only when us blow-ins turn up, having a clue what they're talking about, that they'll, they'll speak in the, the foreign language to you. My dad, and I suppose a few from his generation, are much better at speaking Irish than we would have been in our generation. And even though we've learnt it for about 15 years at school, no one seems to be really that good at it. Even people who are really good at it, or seem to be really good at it at school, don't seem to be able to speak it now. You know, and our, like our road signs, and all our official government literature, of course, would be in both English and Irish. So it's still used. And I don't think any Irish person would actually want that to change. Like I don't think there'd be any kind of a movement towards taking Irish off signs or official documents and I think recently if my memory serves me correctly the EU has uh, officially uh, recognized it as a, as a language so uh, yeah but as I was saying even my dad would, would have a fair bit of Irish but I would say even if he if he was put in the company of someone from the Gaeltacht I'd say he would struggle um, maybe we should do something like that on the TASTA podcast where we try to introduce some Irish words and phrases and so not only me and Spuds can refresh our memory, but that uh, other people too might. Let's see. So Jason asks, how dare you? This is funny because when the question came in, it was before the week of drama. Maybe it was a preemptive divinatory type question. So uh, how dare I? Well, it's the four words of the Magus from uh, Elvis Levy from the book. Transcendental magic. Good old Alfonso Constant. We'll come back to him in a minute in another question. Within that book, he gave the, to know, to will, to dare, and to keep silence, which is the four words of the Magus. There is allegedly a fifth one that's a secret one. But uh, you can find that one out for yourselves. <laughs> um, it's just kind of, it's been co-opted into an awful lot of kind of occult thought and 
um, Western magical tradition, as a lot of uh, Elephant Levy stuff is. Um, to know is to know, to will. Well, we could have an argument all day about what will is, but in this case, I feel it's to, to have the want to do it, uh, to dare, to actually do it. And then when you do it, to shut up about it, <laughs> keep quiet, and not be bragging. Um, the whole thing, keep silent bit of it though, though I do have a question. We've talked about it before here on the, on the podcast, the channel, where that if you keep silent about all of these things, then there's a good chance that the next person coming along has uh, no information to go on and would presume that they're the first person ever having these experiences. But I think there is, there is a great wisdom in the keep silence, in all four of them, to know, to will, to dare, to keep silence. So how dare I? Well, today, I dare to walk around the forest looking like uh, <laughs> an Egypt with a video camera talking to myself. So that's how I dare today. How do you dare? How do you dare, Jason? How dare you? Max asks, what's the most significant transformation you've witnessed in yourself or another that came about through practicing woo? Well, I'll answer that as two parts. The first part, uh, what's the biggest transformation that I found from practicing woo? It's the shadow work, and I know you'll appreciate that because you're, you're a man who likes to uh, delve into the, your own shadow too. Um, and particularly, while it's not ostensibly a magical woo practice, therapy certainly, my approach of it was um, in a shadow work and trying to uncover these things. Um, some of the binding stuff as well, this philosophical midwifery, and these kind of insights. The first big, exposed insight that I got around it was how I play a victim. And there's, of course, there's a trap within the victim playing thing on both sides where you can, you can not allow yourself to actually be a victim. You know, and sometimes you are a victim. And by uh, feeling that you're playing the victim and that is somehow a wrong thing, that can bring in some sense of shame and guilt. But there was kind of a notion that I was, I was personally using it as, um, in a bad way, in, uh, that I was using it as a sort of way to get out of communicating my feelings to, and trying to get people around me to understand something. And it wasn't working, you know. It was, I was, in fact, getting the opposite of what I was looking for in that it was kind of presenting this, look what you've done to me, rather than just saying, look what you've done to me, <laughs> you know. And uh, so that was an interesting kind of, a, um, I suppose, a, a awakening of sorts. And then the, the, the whole thing of finding... The, how I had separated my psyche or myself into at least three different distinct entities, a child, uh, an absolutely um, damaged teenager, um, and then this person trying to occupy that space as well. And that in the kind of integration of bringing those back in, which of course is not full, uh, there's a lot of work to be done on that. You've seen something very weird in my inner mind, my inner dialogue, which went from a we, it was always how are we doing, that was how I talked to myself, was it in a kind of plural, and that has changed totally to an I, so, but of course, for the servants and doing all that kind of stuff where I realised doing something for not trying to get uh, gratitude, not, not gratitude, uh, not trying to get praise, not trying to do something for other people, not trying to please other people, not trying to do something that will make a mark, that will, you know, you know the way in all the kind of stuff that you're kind of told about what you should do <laughs> you know, by people? Well, I did the opposite of that with the Ford Sermons and I did something just purely selfish and um, purely because 
I wanted to do it rather than for any future reward or praise or kudos or to be seen in some sort of light. And it was because of that, I think, why the 47s became what they were, because they just came out as the 47s rather than something. Imagine trying to do something like the 47s where you had in your mind, oh, well, what would Max want? Or how, you know, how would some other, how would Twitter, well, what sort of servants would Twitter want? Or how would Facebook react to a certain thing or whatever? You'd never get it done for a start, but you'd also have a really watered down, terrible system. Uh, and while 47 is far from being perfect, there's certainly some flaws in it. Um, and it's, you know, incomplete. It's not, you know, there's no kind of map that would be completely complete anyway. But it was in learning that kind of notion that to do things, to let things be as they are, and not to do them for reward, not to do them out of desperation or out of need or out of wanting something. Just do it for the sake of doing it. It's hard to do. And the only reason I was able to do it was because I felt everything was going to fall apart anyway. So what did it matter? But I've tried to approach everything since uh, that in that manner. That it's uh, art for art's sake, not for art to make a living. Not to, which is how exactly I would approach, approach previous to it when I was trying to do web comics and stuff. How do I turn this into a job? How do I make money? And that's what the drive was about, rather than making good web comics. But uh, yeah, so the second part of the question would be uh, again the question: What's the biggest kind of change I've seen? Well, if the best, the biggest change I've seen in anyone to do with Woo um, is Spud, because it's <laughs> as hard as it is to believe, Spud was. An, you know, an absolute militant, angry atheist. No interest in Wu. In fact, had a, an aversion to it. So much so that at one point, when I was trying to change, I suppose, and reinvent myself in some ways between from the what had gone previous, which was the, just the comic guy. I had been the guy who was running uh, the main kind of comic website community in Ireland. And I kind of pulled out of that and I wanted to slowly go into doing this other stuff, the, the, the woo-or stuff. Well, not throwing away art, you know. And one of the reasons why I didn't want to come out and do that was like for people like Spud, because I felt like it would be, there would be an argument, there would be a sense of, um, not aggressive, well, aggressive, but it, there would be a sense that this wouldn't go down well, I suppose. Um, and I, I did at one point, I changed um, my newsletter that he would have been subscribed to because of the, of the art. And he, I suppose was quite supportive about my art and comics. It's not to say that he, was, he wasn't a nice person. He was a wonderful person. But just in this kind of area, he, he, he wasn't into it. And, it's, you know, he's explained why, I suppose, that his journey is his journey. Um, but, uh, and I changed the newsletter to... Um, it's like a comic thing to end up to, and I did a thing about Bibliomancy, and he immediately unsubscribed it. And I tried to make a joke about it, and it kind of came out wrong, and I kind of you know, said to him, oh, I see you're not into the woo. And it ultimately came up feeling like I was kind of annoyed by it, which I wasn't, and I was like, kind of trying to make a joke. But uh, that's the kind of, it, it, there was that kind of cross path thing that, um, you know, within that. But then there was kind of, we started, interacting around different things about psychology and Jordan Peterson was one of the things that we actually kind of both could talk about. And we were in a community at times, Slack community, where we're very opposed to any of these kind of ideas and so we kind of got closer um, and when that kind of community kind of fell apart, we just kind of stayed <coughs> friends um, and stayed in communication whatever, which led to uh, 
all that's happened since. And uh, of course, <laughs> Spode has gone from being that uh, anti-woo anti to probably at times certainly has been more woo than I've ever been and uh, has embraced it wholeheartedly. So yeah, from that point of view, I'd say Spud's uh, caterpillar to a butterfly is probably the most pronounced that I've seen in my life because it's definitely from one absolute swing of the pendulum to, to, to the other. And uh, yeah, more power, power to him. It's uh, good guy, Spud, you might have noticed. The Great Abraxas asks, what's your pie in the sky dream for adventures in woo-woo? A yearly get-together, formal school, church, etc. He says etc. I'll add cult. <laughs> um, I don't have a pie in the sky dream for adventures in woo because I've already achieved it. This is what I wanted. I, I, I don't really, I don't want it to be any bigger. I don't want it to really change in any form. I'm more, I suppose, talking about my own life and stuff. Because I'm in a situation now, I'm certainly not in any way rich, but I'm, I'm able to sustain this. I'm able to get up and do what I want. And work on, you know, my artwork, my comics, my music, make videos, my studies around magic and the Western magical tradition, talk to all you wonderful people, and uh, do podcasts, and do all these things. And I've no real yearning whatsoever to, you know, set up a school, because I'm, I'm, I don't ever see what I was doing with Adventures in Woo Woo as teaching. It was documenting what a life lived using these ideas looked like. And uh, who am I to teach anyone anything? Um, I think there's enough people in the occult uh, teaching when they have, uh, ultimately don't have the experience, the qualifications, or, um, Strong word, but the right to do it. But like, who am I to judge that? Um, but I think there's enough out there without me adding myself saying that I somehow know something that's should be presented as a teaching. And um, so I would always kind of say, or see myself as a, a documentarian, if that's the word. So what my hope for the future of Adventures in Woo Woo would be, yeah, go on adventures and maybe meet up with people and all that, but not as a kind of a, not trying to put together a cult or a church or making anything more than what it is now, because this is what I want it to be. If I can sustain this, brilliant. That's the plan, where if for the next 10 years, 20 years, a million years, maybe I'll never die, um, I get to keep continuing to make art, to make podcasts, make videos, make music, do new decks, then yeah, that's what I want. That's, that's my pie in the sky, is to see how long I can keep this going, um, rather than trying to, because there is this kind of notion that you always have to make it bigger and better and become the king of the world. And I have no interest in being the king of the world at all. I, I would quite imagine that being king of the world is terrible. And that while there's some sort of very niche, if you want, fame that I have, um, it's, it's more because people know me rather than it's, it's like any sort of celebrity type thing. I think being an actual famous person or celebrity, <laughs> I can't talk to that, celebrity, would uh, just be awful, awful, and it would not suit my personality whatsoever. Um, yeah, so... To reiterate, 
what's my pie in the sky for adventures in the Wubu? This, as it is right now, continued. Art of Poverty asks, on one of the episodes of Duncan, that's Duncan Barford's podcast last year, he spoke about how the pair of you had talked about spontaneous dream recollection during meditation sessions. Could we hear your take on this phenomenon? Is it worth paying attention to experiences like this? And if so, how do you like to think about them? Um, so that thing is interesting. And it happened, has happened to me more than just in meditative states, but it has happened to me in meditative states and in meditation. Um, it's where you suddenly remember a dream from 10 years ago. That it's not, and it's not like a dream that you've thought about previously. You know, it's not like that you've kind of mulled over this dream over the years. It's that you suddenly remember very clearly a dream from, you know, a year ago, 10 years ago. And, and you kind of go, why is that happening? You know, and there's an interest in kind of, that's weirdness to it. And some of it, you can kind of connect easily enough. You go, all right, I understand why I'm thinking about that because I was thinking about the same type of things that I was thinking about at the time or that seem connected to the dream. But other times, it doesn't. Um, offhand, one of them was to do with um, a dream I had about my grandmother meeting her in the house. But it was in my other grandmother's house and she had walked from one room out into the hall and was talking to me in the hall. Um, I mean, there must be some significance in that, right? But it's like, um, at the time, I couldn't work it out. But what I've been doing recently, and I advise everyone to do it, uh, is have a look at the Pierre Grimes dream interpretation playlist. I'll put it in the show description, where he really analyzes dreams in a very different way than, I suppose, most people tend to think. You know, oh, what does the moon mean? And it's kind of very standard kind of idea around the moon but he gets very specific and what does the person think and what is the state of mind behind it and it's the feelings and stuff like that and what that represents and it's so interesting because you would think you have a very innocuous dream of it well my grandmother uh, comes into the room from a different room and it turns out it's my other grandmother's house and he'll trace that back with you like um you know through the way you talk and what you don't talk about and things you say and how you describe things and how you don't describe things and find something very, very relevant to your life about it all. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's a bit scary in, the, in a strange how, in one of them, I've mentioned this on the TASTA podcast, uh, she's talking about a car that she brought to a mechanic, but the whole thing just laid out her, the entire relationship with her and her mother and how it, it made her felt. And it was a great release for her at the end of it. So I would certainly pay attention to them, possibly have a go at it from a philosophical midwifery point of view or the, the Magia binding, which is a form of that and um, for me, only speaking for me, the philosophical midwifery is explained a lot better um, in his book and there's an awful lot more examples of it and, uh, than there is of the binding. And uh, it, it, at least for now, I'm, I'm, I assume that going through the philosophical midwifery and really trying to get a grip of it, I'll get a better grip of what Alan Chapman's coming at uh, with the, his binding version of it which is, in a sense, a more magical way of looking at it. Although Pierre Grimes has a quite uh, mystical, magical worldview too. So yeah, I would say if you are, are having sudden reoccurrences or re-remembrances of anything, whether that be in a meditative state or whether it's just as you're watching telly or having a walk, I certainly would pay attention to it and try to unravel what it's saying 
And if you think it doesn't seem relevant at all, at least take note of it and write it down because we know how fleeting dreams can be. But as it turns out, you know, cause to say it doesn't go into the long-term memory, it just stays in short-term memory and so that dissipates. But obviously not if then suddenly 10 years later you can remember wholeheartedly a dream. So it's going somewhere or you're re-picking up on something and uh, that you were picking up at the time. And then it also comes down to what you think dreams are too as well, doesn't it? So uh, yeah, I would say pay attention. If you can work it out, awesome. Attack it with from philosophical midwifery or binding or some other kind of way that you want to look at things. If you can't make sense of it, at least make notes about it so that uh, if it does pop up again, you have some sort of frame of reference of the events that are surrounding you at the time when these things come back in. And it might necessarily be just dreams too. You can ever have a sudden remembrance of a memory from years ago that you've, you know you haven't thought about in a long while. It's all, not that you haven't forgotten. If someone mentioned it, it would be there. You would have access to it. But it just pops into your head. And it's not something that you've, again, that you've been mulling over or thinking about over the years. It's just like almost like a new thought. Because as we know, the way we remember things is we remember the last time we remember it. We don't remember the original event, so each time it gets watered down. So when this kind of, in a, I suppose, memory pops in, it has a different quality to it because it's not a remembered, 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 remembered memory. It's like the second time, that's a swan if you can hear that, uh, it's the second or third time you've actually thought about this. Maybe the first time you've remembered it, and so it has a different quality to it. And the dream remembrance in the meditative state has that kind of thing as well. There's a quality to it which is... Pay fucking attention to me. So I tried to pay attention to it. So. Maliel, so sorry. My name pronunciation game is terrible. Is Eliphas Levy's Doctrine and Ritual of High Magic still a relevant book in the world today? Um, relevant to who? Relevant to occultists? Sure. Relevant to the general populace? Probably not so much. Um, I, I, I read it, it's a, read, a number of years ago I read it, and I've read some other stuff, and I, I like Elephus Levy, he definitely has a slant where he is both heavily influenced by Christianity and also very dogmatically against it. Um, he had a kind of big falling out. He was a priest as far as I know, and um, he got chucked out. Maybe I'm conflating that, but he certainly left and announced himself, like Alan Moore, at the age of 40, that he was a ceremonial magician of the highest order. Um, I think it's certainly worth reading um, his thoughts on, on magic because it, it, it kind of puts into place an awful lot of kind of the context of where an awful lot of our ideas, modern ideas in magic come from. Of course Crowley also thought he was the reincarnation of Levy. You know the dates don't fully work out and Crowley had to fudge them a bit saying that you don't reincarnate until within the last six months of uh, the birth. The first three months there's no soul within the body. Uh, Theosophy would say that there's 1,500 years between each reincarnation, so I'm not quite sure there would be an agreement between those three people. Um, his kind of form of magic, uh, Levy's, was that there's three kind of components to magic. One is the astral light, the other is will, and the other is imagination. Now, the astral light is a kind of a kind of psychic thing. It's kind of what's confused with, I suppose, or, or similar to the idea of ether or, you know, the energy, the vril, the pr not, but not really, not prana or chi or these things. It's the kind of the uh, mechanism through which magic kind of happens. The kind of um, agency of magic in some way is this astral light. Um, 
and Theosophy and Secret Doctrine, Madame Blavatsky talks about him and kind of dismisses or uh, critiques his kind of views on these type of things. But a lot of what we kind of get from that etheric, energy-based model, I suppose, of magic would come from that. Now, it's not exactly what he was saying, um, and he's not really equating astrolite with what Ito would have been considered, and certainly not what the scientific kind of view in Ito was, where it's this kind of energy that's pervading the universe, like a dark matter, um, the Akashic or something like that. Um, and of course, the will, again, we could talk all day about it, will and uh, the imagination. Um, he had this kind of notion, he's this kind of famous thing, saying about how you have to have faith over kind of belief and imagination is the kind of guiding force. So it's almost like the kind of visualization stuff. But he has this kind of very case magic notion about where he talks about um, if I believe that the statue of Peter, of St. Peter, is the same and I can have the same relationship and the same faith and the same understanding and the same interaction with that as I would with the real St. Peter, then there's no difference. Now he says that's superstitious as well, but that the, all things are done within faith. So while there is a kind of an energetic... Uh, people will disagree with me saying that about astral light, because um, it's not quite that. But so let's, for the moment, just say that while there's an energetic component to his magic, there's also a kind of um, faith-based, mind, mental, almost mesmerism, which of course would have been around uh, and popular at the time. Um, so I think he's what reading. He certainly has influenced uh, all of what we have. And he's not well read by an awful lot of people. You don't see an awful lot of people talking about him. And I think one of the reasons is because he's hard to read. He, he, he talks in that kind of occult babble. Uh, and he does this thing where he'll define something once. And then for the rest of the book, not, not repeat it, not define it again, not explain it again. So if you don't catch it the first time, if you weren't paying attention completely the first time, then uh, you will spend the next 200 pages talking about <laughs> astral light and not knowing exactly what he's talking about or whatever he hasn't defined. So um, there's some good YouTube lectures about him um, from, from years ago, where uh, back when I suppose when YouTube only had a 10 minute limit, so you could, they're broken up into, into 10 minutes. I'll try and find them and put them in the show description, but it's kind of an overall view of him. Uh, a, wait when he was putting his books together, because he's French, obviously, so they had to be translated. He, <laughs> one of his books, he spends the entire introduction basically telling him why he's wrong, uh, which is fun. But uh, yeah, is it worth reading? Yes. Is it relevant to occultism? Yes, it'll put a lot of stuff in context and you'll see where an awful lot it comes from. Is it relevant to the greater world? No, is, is any of it relevant uh, to greater world, any of this thought? It should be, but is it? GK. Hey, Tommy. Hey, GK. When one makes a servitor, roughly how much of your energy goes into it? And can you replenish that energy or wait till the servitor dies before you get that energy back? If you ever get the energy back. Well, I know why you're asking that and why you're asking it in such a way and, uh, excuse me, while well, I have to walk over a precarious kind of stone bridge here, but it's not how I viewed energy um, exchange and making a servitor at all. I don't think you're giving up a part of your life force energy and placing it into, and creating, you know, like a new spirit. Certainly not how I approach it. If that was the case, I would have very little um, energy left. 
I'll go back over to this bridge because there's people coming. Uh, I see it more like there's an awful lot of effort in delineating to the ser or safe, the servitors, in my case the servants, and um, putting them together, or drawing the art, explaining them, writing the books, all of that stuff, and that takes a high deal of energy. And uh, but in, in the same way that if you asked, well, how much energy do you lose from a day's work, and do you ever get it back? Well, I mean, go to sleep and it's back, you know. But it's still some of these things can take a bigger toll out of you, depending on your job. Like a day working in an office on a spreadsheet compared to someone who works down a coal mine or whatever. Um, you know, it's a different different depletion. Something very physical versus something very, I don't know, I was going to say mundane, but whatever. That can be quite stressful too, working in offices. I'm not trying to, you know, downplay that. But uh, if you see it as you're giving a part of your energy away, I'd be very careful about it because that's probably what you're going to experience. I would suggest not doing that <laughs> um, because you don't need to because they work quite well without that. 40 servants work in attention. They don't work on my energy because if that was the case then any time someone used it, I would have to, I suppose, be drained a bit, but not if you've given us sufficient energy. I don't feel depleted in any way by any servitor I've created. I feel, if anything, I've more energy, more experience, more... Well, I've got better. Um, I didn't get sicker. I didn't get weaker. Uh, if anything, I became more energised. He says as he walks through a forest breathless because it's been a long while since he walked and talked. But in general, uh, yeah, so just be careful of what you t you're deciding is the truth about the matter. And do a servitor. Here, well, here. Be good chaos magic about it. Do a servitor where you don't give it part of your intrinsic life force. And see how it works out. And do one at the same time that you do. And see how you feel. And see how it is. See if it's worth giving up some life force for it. Final question is, can you, do you have the ability to do that? Not you, I mean, Royal you. Have we the ability to even do that? To give up, to choose to give up some of our life force? I'm not, I'm not sure. You'll have to find out. Let me know how you get on and what you think, but I would say, be careful. That's my suggestion. And don't, it's like blood magic. You don't, you know, try the, <laughs> the non-heavy hitting stuff first. It's like people doing blood magic to, I don't know, to get $50 or something like that. Something very, <clears throat> I don't know $50 is $50 is diff to different people, but it's like, what's the next stage after that? How do you ramp up from that? What if something really bad happens and you need $5,000? Is it a hand you cut off, you know? But there's many more ways of doing these things without going to the extremes. And I think giving up a part of your life energy is an extreme. I'm not even sure it's possible. But uh, yeah, let me know. Keep me, keep me in the loop on how you get on with that stuff. Final question. Chiro, what would you recommend trying during astral projection to get the most enjoyment or practical benefits? Is it a regular part of your practice? Astral projection is not any form of my practice. <sighs> I tried it a number of times, never really did it. Never wasn't able to leave the body in the way that people 
claim they have. Um, to the point that I'm a bit, you know, kind of skeptical about this whole idea that you're actually are physically leaving your body and can see the world in the same way as you see it now, which is how some people describe it. I'm much more interested in active imagination and I find that much more helpful. But I don't dismiss the idea of um, astral projection just because I can't do it. But it's just to say that I can't really speak to it. I've done lucid dream work, I've done active imagination, I've done that kind of stuff and find that quite beneficial. Uh, to lucid dream stuff I went and talked to people, or tried to talk to people, tried to talk to John Constantine, which I did. He said, if he believed what I believed, he could do anything. That was his message to me. I tried to talk to Ganesha a few times, but it was really funny because I met Ganesha in the dream at um, a train station, and he was the other side of the platform, and when I tried to get him, loads of people came between me and him, which was very interesting that I tried to meet the god of the removal, mover of obstacles, and uh, there was an obstacle between me and him. It was only a while after that I realised that was, that was what actually was happening. And, uh, yeah, active imagination is great to try and go back to bits in your past and trying to work out what was happening or to go talk to some learned being or to try and just try and unpack some stuff or just go on an adventure. Flying is always great fun in lucid dreaming or active imagination or any of that but uh, yeah I'm not the person to talk about the uh, astral projection stuff because one I've never been able to successfully do it two I'm skeptical <laughs> skeptical I'm not sure it exists as an actual thing quite a, a skeptic in that regards and uh, three there's better people informed that you, you could you could ask about that and I would only be uh, talking about stuff that um, I don't know that, you know, and adding, adding noise, adding more noise. So uh, if there is people who do know uh, a lot about astral projection and good, good kind of processes and good things to do, the most beneficial way, please leave uh, a message in uh, the message area, if it be that in YouTube or any of the kind of podcatchers, or come talk to me on Discord, on the Facebook, on Twitter, or any of those social media places. Although, with the Musk taking over the Twitter, We'll see how many people hang out on Twitter. You just talk about having to upload your passport, which I certainly am not going to do. So, good people of the internet, that's the Q&A for this month. We try to do this once a month. And it's mostly for people on Patreon, but if there's not enough questions from people on Patreon, I open it up to the Discord. And the Discord people always have some good questions for me. So if you'd like to get some questions or get in on the other things we do uh, on, on all of these places, then uh, check out all the links in the show description. You can buy me a book off my book list, send me some money, join the Patreon, do all those things that uh, every, <laughs> every person on the internet asks you to do. There's only so many resources, so you have to, uh, you have to make your own uh, determination on who deserves all these things. So, anyway, good people of the internet, until next time, be well.